Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York Bureau. I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. And Adam Feuerstein is on vacation this week. It's Thursday, August 9th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Picking biotech stocks is a tough business, as one Republican congressman learned last year. Now the government said he broke the law while losing millions of dollars. We break down the case against Representative Chris Collins. Impossible Foods, the company behind the plant-based burgers that taste like meat, has a mission to save the lives of countless animals. We'll ask, so why then does the animal rights activist group PETA hate Impossible Foods? Spark Therapeutics announced some positive data on its experimental treatment for hemophilia A, and Wall Street was not terribly impressed. Doctors, however, had a different take. We'll discuss what's become sort of a cultural divide in biotech. And finally, we'll bring you another lightning round. Last year's congressional picnic on the White House lawn didn't go great for one GOP congressman. So Representative Chris Collins of New York got a pretty distressing email. Innate Immunotherapeutics, an Australian biotech company in which he was heavily invested, had just entered a crisis. The company's only drug meant to treat multiple sclerosis turned out to be no better than placebo in a clinical trial. And Collins knew that as soon as the public found out, Innate's share price was going to tank. And that was the moment he made a very bad decision, according to federal prosecutors. So cut to this week, Collins got indicted for insider trading. The feds say basically that right there on the White House lawn back in 2017, he called his adult son, who was also a big innate shareholder, and broke the law by tipping him off about the trial failure. And then his son, according to prosecutors, tipped a bunch of other people off, and then they all did a bunch of insider trading that helped them avoid hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses once innate share price finally did plummet. You know, this is sounding kind of familiar. How does this fit into the pantheon of biotech insider trading scandals? It does follow a lot of well-worn pathways, particularly the one that put Martha Stewart in federal prison back in 2001, if I recall correctly. Um, And we can get into that a little more later. I think one of the things that stood out to me in reading this indictment is how much of a true believer Chris Collins was. So we already knew that he spent years going around recommending innate stock, despite his not being a scientist or a doctor, and he would pitch it to basically anyone who would listen, including his colleagues in the House. But the indictment paints him not as like a crass stock promoter, but as like a real deal believer in the science behind innate. The thing that I think sticks out to me and will probably be the most memorable thing about at least this indictment is, according to prosecutors, when he got that email saying that innate's drug had failed, his typed out response to the rest of the board was, wow, makes no sense. How are these results even possible? With three question marks. You know, within the context of insider trading, there's something pure and genuine about that. I feel like to the extent that one respects insider traders (laughs) or accused insider traders, there's something to be said about really believing in the company. Yeah, that that did really stand out to me. And and the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that there were three members of the Collins family who were among Innate's 20 largest shareholders. They were, of course, Chris, the congressman, and uh, the son, Cameron, who he allegedly tipped off. But there was also Caitlin Collins, um, who is Chris's daughter. And nowhere in the indictment is there a specific mention of her or even a suggestion that she was one of the people who was tipped off. So I guess the downside is that she took losses that her brother didn't, allegedly. But the upside is she is not currently under federal indictment. This all happened on the White House lawn. 
This seems like a scene out of a bad movie. Yeah, that's. I was thinking that as well. And actually, somebody, I believe at CBS News, dug deep into their photo archives and found a photo of Chris Collins on the phone on the White House lawn at about 7, 10 p.m., which is when, allegedly, he was making this call to his son, this fateful uh, decision that he made. But yeah, I mean, if, if I were watching said movie and... Uh, the plot was that a congressman like did an insider trading. And if they depicted him doing it with literally the White House in the background, that would probably strain credulity. But at least according to federal prosecutors, that is exactly what happened. So let's dive a little bit deeper into some of the precedent here. You'd mentioned, Damien, the Martha Stewart case. Yeah. So basically the deal from that, if you recall back in 2001, I mean, I think that that case is memorable because Martha Stewart is so famous, but in fact, it was a biotech insider trading scandal. So there was a company called Imclone and they had a cancer drug that was awaiting FDA approval. The CEO of Imclone, Sam Waxel, got word that it was going to be rejected. And and it's very similar to kind of what we're talking about with Collins. That news was not yet public. What Sam did and was convicted of doing is telling friends and family members about that pending announcement, which was certainly going to tank Imclone stock. And then those people sold their shares and avoided losses and in many cases ended up in federal prison, which was the case with Martha Stewart, who was a friend of Sam Waxel. And I think to the extent that that has a read through to this case, it's bad for Chris Collins because Chris Collins did not sell any of his shares of innate. So he didn't technically insider trade, but he did tell the FBI that he didn't tell his son. So if it's established that he did in fact tell his son, lying to the FBI is pretty tough. And similarly, Waxel didn't sell his shares of Imclone, although I believe he tried to, but either way, he still ended up in federal prison for five years for just tipping the other people off. So what should we expect next in this saga? Uh, Collins has been indicted. Uh, Aren't there some midterm elections coming up? Yeah, so that's the fun part. Chris Collins, like everyone else in the House, uh, is up for re-election in a couple months, and he remains on the ballot. And my understanding is that unless he voluntarily removes himself, that's just going to be the case. Um, The district he represents includes Buffalo, New York, and is a pretty strong Republican district. I know Donald Trump won it by, I think, a decent margin last year. And Collins is a longtime representative from that district, but also, you know, being on the news all day for a couple weeks about an alleged insider trading fraud is probably not great when it comes to campaign fodder. So yeah, that'll be a race to watch. So let's talk about burgers, militant vegans, and lab rats. You've probably tasted or at least heard of Impossible Foods. That's the Silicon Valley company behind meatless burgers and other products that actually taste like meat. Part of the reason these products taste like meat is because of the secret sauce used to make them. It's an ingredient called soy leg hemoglobin. And basically it's a protein that contains heme, which is the molecule that is essentially responsible for why meat tastes like meat. So full disclosure, when I lived in Boston, I used to get Impossible's meatball sandwiches at the fast casual chain Clover for lunch all the time. Anyway, Impossible Foods has long sold its products in restaurants like Clover. And the company did not need the FDA's permission to do that. But Impossible wanted to broaden its reach to larger restaurants and grocery stores, and so it decided to seek a stamp of approval from the FDA to try to demonstrate that its product is safe to eat. And a couple weeks ago, the company announced it had received a quote-unquote no-questions letter from the agency, and that essentially says that its signature ingredient doesn't raise any safety concerns with the regulators. So in order to get that stamp of approval from the FDA... Impossible said it determined that it would have to test its special ingredient in animal models. And so it did so on a total of 188 rats in several experiments. 
And as is typical in medical research, the rats were sacrificed. So from Impossible's perspective, the core mission is to save countless animals from being killed in the name of beef for cows. And so the company saw the deaths of 188 rats as a trade-off for the greater good. The activist group PETA, however, short for People for the Ethical Treatments of Animals, saw things quite differently. Wait, you'd think PETA would love Impossible Foods. You would think that. But instead, PETA put out this long blog post with a litany of attacks against Impossible Foods. And then that escalated onto Twitter, where the organization itself was criticizing the company, so too many of its members. This spilled out over a number of days. There was no lack of vitriol. And all of this is despite the fact that Impossible claims that it consulted with PETA before undertaking these rat studies and actually used a PETA-approved research organization to do them. Things got stranger when Michael Eisen, a UC Berkeley geneticist, got involved in some of the back and forth on Twitter. Eisen is a paid advisor to Impossible Foods, and he spoke with us by phone the other day about the dispute. Michael, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So Michael, how did you get entangled in this whole thing between PETA and Impossible Foods? PETA, you know, chose to mix their statements about the use of animal testing in, in our FDA approval with a bunch of just complete falsehoods about the burger, the process we went through to, to do the testing, its safety, its composition. Basically, they chose to really slime, <laughs> slime impossible food. Um, with all sorts of, of things that were irrelevant and false to sort of back up their claim that animal testing was a bad thing. And, and that's what got me involved in kind of ar arguing with them. What was the alternative situation? If you hadn't sought that FDA approval, would that have limited the number of places you could sell the product? You know, our, our goal is, is to completely replace animal products in the global food supply. And it was made very clear to us that you know, as we got to larger and larger customers, you know, fast food chains and institutional clients and ultimately grocery stores, that they would require that we get this graph certification from the FDA before they would buy our products. So we really didn't have a, a practical choice. We had to go down on this path in order to um, achieve our goal, which is to save billions of animals every year and, and save the planet from the destructive impacts of animal farming. So it wasn't really an option for us to not do it. So one thing that strikes me about this whole uproar is that Impossible Burger's core mission is to save animals from being killed. You would think that PETA would love Impossible. So what happened? That, that's the thing that's most confusing to me is why they would choose to broad, false, broad attack on Impossible Food, given that, in fact, if we're successful, we're going to accomplish way, way, way more than than in terms of um, promoting animal safety than PETA has ever accomplished. You know, the big issue that came out of this, in fact, for me, was was why it was so important that we got this FDA approval in the first place. Um, you know, PETA, for all their, you know, their their claims about the problems with animal testing, they, they demonstrate, you know, why it's so important that we prove to people that the ingredients we use are safe in a formal way, even though we... We're very confident of that in, in the first place. We had to do this precisely so that people like PETA don't attack us with these false accusations. Michael, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So after we talked with Michael Eisen, we reached out to PETA to give them a chance to comment on a few things that he said. I spoke with Kathy Guillermo. She's a senior vice president at PETA. She disputed the notion that PETA had made false statements and accusations about Impossible's products. She also reiterated one of the major sticking points of this dispute. 
PETA contends the animal tests were done unnecessarily, while Impossible says that's not true. Here's what Guillermo had to say. So helping animals means helping animals. It doesn't mean helping some and not helping others. If their goal is to help animals, they need to do just that, and they need to stop harming them. And we would look to Impossible to commit to never harming animals in the future, to banning all tests on animals in the future, and to make make that commitment plain and clear right now to everybody who is following this controversy. If they want food wars, we're happy to give them food wars. I think what Kathy Guillermo said there kind of highlights how heated this debate has gotten. You know, these two organizations ostensibly share the same fundamental goal. PETA's position is sort of an absolutist one in which the death of 188 rats is not justifiable, even if it spares the lives of some untold number of cows. And, And then what I think about What's fascinating about this still being so heated is that those rats are just, they're dead. They're dead now. They're not coming back. And Impossible hasn't said it's going to kill any more rats, although I guess to Kathy's point, they haven't necessarily pledged not to. But it just seems like, like can't, can't these two organizations just move on now? Let's talk about one of the biggest cultural divides in biotech. Wall Street versus the doctor's office. So every so often, there's a big clinical trial result for some drug, and investors call it a disappointment, and thus the company's stock price drops. But physicians who actually treat the disease in question tend to look on the bright side. They preach patience, and they always say, hold out for more data. And so from the outside, it can be kind of like, who are you supposed to believe? That was the case this week in Hemophilia A. Spark Therapeutics unveiled some data from a small trial in which five patients seemed to do pretty well on the company's drug. Two patients, however, ran into problems that made it not work. So on Wall Street, this was bad news. Spark's therapy didn't look as good as a competing one from a company called Biomarin, and so the stock price fell by more than 20% the day the news was announced. But doctors who treat hemophilia patients saw things differently, right? Yeah, so I talked to three physicians, and their conclusions were markedly different from those of investors and, and equities analysts. Basically, what they said is, sure, right now, at this very second, the biomarin therapy looks superior to the Spark one. But what they all underlined over and over again is how early in the process we are, way too early to be drawing broad conclusions. We've only seen data from, I think, about 20 patients in total from both companies, and so much could change between now and when this would be ready for marketing, basically. So it's entirely possible, they kept underlining, that a year from now, Spark will be perceived as the leader in this space. So should we trust one side of this debate over the other? That's the thing. I don't think that investors are crass and short-sighted, and I don't think that doctors are naive or in the tank for the companies that they represent. It's just a fundamental difference in perspective that comes from the jobs those two parties do. If you're on Wall Street, and it's your job to assess the -the up-to-the-minute value of a company's stock, then this sort of horse race stuff of who's ahead in this very second is important. So when the stock sells off, that's just those people doing their jobs. Contrarily, if you're a physician who actually treats these patients and it's your job to care for them over the long term, to look over the horizon and kind of guess as to where the standard of care might go, I think that makes you inherently a little more optimistic about each little tendril of data. And it also changes just fundamentally how you look at this news. So what's next? Are we going to get more data that could prove either the doctors here or the Wall Street analysts here to be correct? 
We are, eventually. So as I mentioned, Biomarin is a little bit ahead of Spark. So in about a year or so, we'll see data from a larger trial on Biomarin's seemingly superior hemophilia A treatment. And what the doctors underlined is that we could see safety problems there. We could see waning effects in terms of benefit. It could be that that therapy just completely goes away. And likewise, Spark has promised to start its own large, longer trial at the end of this year. So, you know, looking 18 months into the future, we'll find out just how promising that therapy is. All right, it's time for another lightning round. Let's get to it. So first up, As you're probably aware, the drug industry tends to point at the middlemen that stand between you and them uh, in terms of access to drugs as being responsible for how high drug prices are. But the CEO of CVS, which is one of the largest middlemen, said that's not true at all. On the company's earnings call this week, the CEO of CVS defended uh, those rebates. He said the company keeps just 2% of those discounts. The rest of it, the remaining 98%, it returns to customers. And that doesn't totally check out with what, at least in broader terms, not necessarily with CVS, people say about PBMs and how the dollar breakdown comes out. But I think the more interesting thing here, and and maybe the audience he's actually addressing, is less investors and more the White House, because as we know, the Trump administration, um, through Health and Human Services, has been pushing to basically eliminate those rebates all told. And it sounds like CVS doesn't think that's a good idea. And there seems to be kind of a growing anticipation that that might happen. Uh, Pfizer CEO Ian Reid, we'd mentioned last week, uh, said he believes that those rebates might go away altogether. So $12 billion is objectively a lot of dollars. And it's also the valuation attached to a biotech company called Samumed, which is privately held and just raised another $438 million to back its efforts to develop drugs. And that valuation prompted some skepticism on Twitter this week. There seem to be a lot of naysayers who thought that is an inflated valuation for a bunch of anti-aging drugs uh, that don't have a huge amount of evidence behind them. And th- that's one of the interesting things, I think, about Samomet in the sort of enchanted forest of unicorns. The other biotech companies we've seen get big while staying private have sort of forward-looking technologies that sort of invite you to dream. Moderna Therapeutics has a technology that it promises to turn the body cells into drug factories, and unicorns past, like Denali, had novel approaches to get molecules into the brain. What's interesting about Samomet is they seem to just have, like, a small molecule drug, like a pill, that targets a thing that science has already known, and they also have phase two data out there that nobody's terribly gassed about. So I find it really interesting that they've managed to capture the imaginations of people to get this $12 billion valuation, despite not really dealing in like sci-fi science the way that other companies have. I feel like we're going to need a whole new category of unicorns. It's so unimpressive to just be a standard unicorn these days. Pegasus? Do Pegasus have horns? (laughs) A single billion dollar private company is a unicorn. But if you get into the double digits, i.e. the $12 billion for Samomid, then that's a Pegasus. We've done it. This is financial journalism at its finest. Moving on, let's talk about Amicus Therapeutics. That's the drug maker that's expecting a decision from the FDA soon on its experimental drug for a fatal rare disease. Yeah, the interesting thing here is that this, everybody expects the drug to win approval. And if it does, it will end a very long and kind of strange regulatory saga for Amicus, which to condense it as much as possible There was a time in which the FDA told the company it needed to run another very long and very arduous trial that would have been difficult to recruit considering the rarity of the disease in question. And so 
the stock tanked, and people kind of wrote that off. They were figuring that this drug, if it ever won approval, would be years in the future. And then the 21st Century Cures Act passed. Scott Gottlieb became commissioner of the FDA. Donald Trump was elected president and made a lot of noise about speeding up the pathway of new drugs. And the FDA reversed course and said to Amicus, basically, we will consider the drug based upon the evidence that we previously said was insufficient. And that leads us to now. And so Amicus is kind of a tidy little story about all the stuff we talk about with precision medicine and regulatory flexibility and how the FDA has really, really changed over the past five to 10 years. And you can expect that decision by Monday at the latest and plenty of hot takes about how indeed this is a tidy story that encapsulates everything we believe or want to believe about the changing industry. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Alex Hogan and Dom Smith. They produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you don't like, where you're listening from, and tell us where you stand in the great food wars of 2018. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. Thank you.